Hi, welcome to Chatting to a Friend. I'm Katie Friend and in this podcast I'm chatting to incredible women about their life experiences and adventures as well as their thoughts on friendship, community, self-care, setting boundaries and how they keep healthy, happy and sane. This week's guest is Annabelle Abs, and she is the author of several books, but the most recent and about to be published is Windswept, Walking in the Footsteps of Remarkable Women. It's the most fascinating conversation about women, sometimes some of them extremely well-known women, Simone de Beauvoir, Georgia O'Keeffe, who used walking as a means to reset their lives at kind of critical points. They walk for their mental health, their sort of physical well-being, but often for the freedom and very often against the societal expectations of women at the time. It's The book is intertwined with parts of Annabelle's life herself from her quite unusual upbringing in the 60s in the wilds of Wales, being unschooled as it would be called these days and through to motherhood and the need for a bit of freedom from the all-consuming parts of of that particular section of her life and talking about what she learned from these women what she's learned from her own walking and how it has really helped her in her life to be able to do that so I have oh it was just such a fascinating conversation I often say this and I always mean it, but I really could have talked to her forever. She's really fascinating. The book is out in the middle of June, 10th of June, and her challenge, Katie, is really something quite special. So listen out for that really near the end. Enjoy. Hi, Annabelle. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me, Katie. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, Really a huge pleasure because I'm reading your book I haven't finished it yet and I couldn't even sort of race through it in dipping in and out in order to talk to you about the whole thing because I'm loving it so much that I just wanted to <laughs> to do it properly it's so amazing and the book we're talking about of course is Windswept which is coming out very soon um but really a fantastic really amazing book so far thank you thank you I'm glad you're enjoying it yeah and I found it um because I have been looking at for books about women who walk or women walking in history and it just kind of I don't know serendipity or you know the Facebook algorithm who knows (laughs) it just popped up oh I know um Sarah Williams of Tough Girl Challenges was unboxing it on her her stories and I just went oh and I messaged you I think I said this is the book I've been looking for so tell us a little bit about it well, like you, I started off. Um, I started off reading lots of books about walking, uh, and I always have done. But when I when I was at home with um, with several small st- uh, children, I got quite claustrophobic, and I'd always walked. So I thought I'm going to read lots of books about walking, and at least that way I will be walking in my mind, and I'll feel as mm. if I'm walking. So you know, I kept going off and buying these books about walking. I, I didn't quite realise, but there was something about these books that wasn't quite right. And then one day, I just looked at them. I thought they are all by men. Mm. And a lot of them were sort of anthologies of walking and histories of walking. And they were not only by men. I suddenly sort of thought there are no women here. And I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't notice that at first. I just get thinking, you know, I can't quite relate to this. You know, my walks Mm. aren't like this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's that sort of eureka moment. There's no women here. So I thought, you know, this is 
this is really strange. Is it is it because women didn't do these sorts of walks? And I was reading about uh, obviously men doing these sort of long distance hikes. You know, the put the backpack on and off you go the day after day after day after day, as opposed to you know strolls and rambles. I love those two. So, you know, going out into quite wild places, I guess, you know, that's where I wanted to be in my mind at the time, mm-hmm. in my London, in my London little tiny kitchen. And I'd also grown up in a quite a wild part of Wales. So, um, you know, I was sort of hankering for that. I think I was actually hankering for freedom, but the two had become, you know, really bound up together in my mind, you know, uh, walking in wild places and freedom. The two just, I, for some reason in my head, they were just like, you know, I need I need the wild space to feel free, and to feel free, I need the wild space. Mm. Um, anyway, so to go back to all these books, they're all full of men. They're all by men. They're all about men, and uh, historically, you know, they were all men too, uh, writing about how wonderful it was and how free they felt. And I thought, you know, this is really odd. Surely, surely, you know, we all have two legs. We've all had to walk <laughs> all through life. Surely, women walked. Surely, other women felt what I'm feeling which is this desperate need to get out get out of the house and, and get into nature and just go for you know for, for as, long, as long as possible and um I started to rummage around in libraries right in the basements you know, in the basements of libraries looking for out of print books and reading through letters and reading through uh journals of of historical women so I started with mountaineers because I thought you know the, the women that climb mountains probably also walked hmm. and then they from there because a lot of them actually did they started they were they started by doing you know they'd go out for a, an hour then the next day they might try two hours and then they'd go out for a little bit longer often with their husbands or brothers mm-hmm. or whatever and then they'd see the mountain and think well maybe I could do that so so quite often they started hiking but then you know even before that I discovered there were plenty of women who were mm-hmm. going off you know just uh, you know, literally with a bag, quite often with, with a bag or with a small dog, you know, just sort of not really hiking in the way that we think of it. But they were going off and they were doing long distances and they, you know, they, it wasn't a sort of, it wasn't organized. They didn't have uh, tour guides or, or guides of any sort. They didn't have places to stay. Um, one of my favorite walkers walked across Canada with a tent that she stitched herself she went completely mm. on her own from Montreal to Vancouver which is a phenomenal wow. distance through absolutely barren I mean there's nothing it's utterly barren I spoke to my I haven't been to Canada but I spoke to my Canadian friends and they were like oh my god that's savage you know that, <laughs> <would do> that. <laughs> so so you know and then I'd find one one would lead me on to another and then as I said a lot of it was in letters so the women mm-hmm. that, didn't write and most of them didn't come back and write about it some did but most of them would then you know they'd send letters to friends and and you know eventually the story would surface so in that way I started to pull together actually quite a large um I call it a database Mm. because I've I've sort of logged them all quite a large database of uh walking women and none of them appeared in any of these anthologies or or walking histories uh and yet they were all there so I was you know I was really quite cross by this stage because it's another another oh a history of walking uh, and none of these women were in it and even famous women really, women I consider really well known like yeah you know, Georgia O'Keefe who I write about and Simone de Beauvoir you mm. know even huge names like that they you know Georgia O'Keefe is always talked about as an artist but no one talked about the incredible uh, the vast amount of walking that she did walking for inspiration 
but quite often walking to try and find her own voice and walking to uh, recover. Uh, and so a lot of the women I found were were walking for, I guess you would call it, I mean, I call it sort of to, to, for reconstruction, for recovery and reconstruction to, to rebuild mm. themselves. So a lot of the women walked for very different reasons uh, to the men. So the, mm. look at historically, the men that walked historically, they would often, you know, oh, I felt like an adventure and I'd done a bit of army training and, you know, and they just, <laughs> off they go. They never worry about where they have to uh, sleep at night. They never worry about not arriving before dark. They never worry about navigating. Mm. Uh, quite often they they carry a gun. So people like uh, Louis Stevenson, when he goes off, travels with my donkey, uh, he, you know, he takes a gun that, you know, he knows how to use. So they're they're walking with a very different um, mindset. You know, they're walking already with that sort of nonchalance, whereas the women I discovered are walking with a a, a completely different different frame of reference, really. They're having always to think about so much more. You know, how much can they carry? Uh, Everything, of course, is very, very heavy. And you probably Mm. picked up one of those old, you know, the old... The old Swiss rucksacks they quite often have in, in restaurants, I've noticed, in the Alps. Got have them on the wall, don't they? Yeah. And you lift it and it's just so heavy and all the all the buckles are brass and the straps are leather. And so, you know, these are women who do not go to the gym. <laughs> they, you know, they yeah. do not lift weights. They're having to carry this. They always have to make sure that they arrive somewhere before nightfall because it's genuinely dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, although some of them are incredibly brave. They um they have to you know they have to think about I talk about it in the book quite a lot they have to think about you know, they have to think about their periods and, and period mm. and you know they don't have uh, they don't have neurofen they yeah. don't have mobile phones they don't have GPS there's no mountain rescue service so you know no one knows where they are so now of course yeah. we're all told aren't we always especially women you know, tell someone where you're going <laughs> tell, yeah. tell them what's on me back <laughs> they couldn't do any of that they literally just went. And everything was also so much more dangerous then. You know, there weren't the all the marked up trails. So they they sort of took their life into their hands, really. Mm. Uh, and that was why they did it because they they went because they were they had they felt they had nowhere else to go. They they got to the end of the tether, whereas the men sort of just go for adventure. But the women are thinking, you know, it's it's for my it's almost for my mental health. Yeah. I have to go and sort this out. I have to get away from this man, or I have to think about this. Uh, a lot of them were going for long walks because they were at those points in their lives and you know we've all had them you come to those milestones and you're a bit lost and you don't quite know where to go so Mm. uh, many very brave intrepid women in this exactly that situation would uh, take off and I think it's I think it's utterly tragic that we don't know about them because they are our legacy really yes Uh, they are you know they are if I if I had known about all of those women doing that, it would not have taken me quite as long as it did <laughs> to pack my own backpack and go off on my own. Mm. So I, I'd done a lot of uh, lot of walking, but always, always I was with uh, with other people. I was quite scared about going off on my own. Um, and these 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 women reading their accounts gave me, you know, gave me the courage to think, okay. I can do that. And I'd always Mm. wanted to do it. I'd always, you know, that's why I was reading all these books about men doing it because I wanted to do it. Yeah. But it took reading, yeah, it took reading about these women and discovering their stories to give me the courage to do it. And 
that's really why I'm 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 I feel cross that they've been so overlooked. Mm. And why do you think they were overlooked by the men? I, there's a there's a sort of a, a recurring theme throughout your book about this whole women being on their own being you know slightly odd, a little bit worrying, putting people out of their comfort zone as to why why are you on your own? Mm. Do you think that's partly why, or just simply because? just never occurred to the men that the women were doing anything these women were doing anything worthwhile within their sphere well I think so we're going back sort of 100 years plus I think that um when when the wild you know wilderness was really the territory it was male territory Mm. white male territory in in Europe certainly and it was where they would go and do their hunting their shooting their fishing their surveying their you know, scaling peaks. It was where they did all those very masculine physical things. Mm. Uh, and I think they didn't want women there. They wanted mm-hmm. women where they probably have mostly wanted them in the kitchen and the bedroom yeah. where they could be controlled. So there's certainly that aspect of it. And of course, you know, if a woman then wrote an account and tried a book about it and tried to get someone to publish it, you know, the child, all the publishers were men. And they were like, yeah. I, I'm not sure how conscious it was. I don't think they actually sat there and thought, oh, well, we don't want women doing that. You know, they would quite often say, well, we don't, you know, we don't think this is terribly safe. So, you know, we don't, think don't want to encourage yeah, we don't want such to nonsense in other women. That's right. You know, <laughs> yes, exactly. So you never know how much of it was conscious and how much of it is happening mm. sort of slightly subconsciously that they just didn't want women leaving. You know, they were all, they all wanted to go home to their own wives. <laughs> Didn't want their own one yeah. <laughs> out, you know, trekking across uh, mountain ranges or you know walking through mm-hmm. forests. So, so I'm sure there was an element of that because the whole thing back then was also that you know if you were deemed to be a bit odd, that that reputation, you know, that reputation was mm. really important as a woman. You know, if you went off uh, an unmarried woman out walking on your own, that mm-hmm. indicated that you were you know quite possibly a prostitute or, or mm-hmm. looking looking you know a bit. <laughs> you had rather sort of hefty sexual appetites you were out yeah. you were out looking for a man and as say in the book it wasn't just their reputation it was the reputation of their family and extended family and and society as well yeah that's right so you know if, if I'm out there walking in in the wilderness and everyone thinks I'm a bit bonkers then not only do I not get a, a, a husband but my my two sisters my mm. two sisters probably won't get husbands either the whole family and then perhaps my my father won't get the, that you know the right amount of trade in his shop you know it was it was it was quite um sort of I don't know with I, I just I'm delighted that we've moved on from that but that mm. whole thing about having an intact reputation was uh, was really important yeah but it's so so recent though because I remember you know when I was at university and I was going traveling by myself for a year and a half, which I did, which I'd always wanted to do. And I went by, as I say, I went on my own. And that's only, what, not even 30 years ago. And people were saying, well, what do you mean you're going on your own? Haven't you got a friend to go yes. with? And, it, well, you know, people giving me cautious to carry and, you know, you must take self-defense lessons and how will you be on it? And, and of course, they're all things to consider. But I, even then, it was really not, it was quite unusual for a girl to go off traveling on her own. Yes. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, it's really only in the last two, dec- two decades, do you think? Mm. In the last 20 years, maybe even 10 years, 
and it's yeah. become perfectly normal. And even now it's not still normal because I go walking, I go walking for days on my own and I still have, and women younger than me saying, oh, what? you're on your own, but aren't you afraid and aren't you worried and aren't like, oh, I would never, I could never do that. And that's not necessarily a reputational thing. That's just, as, as you cover a lot in the book, that's a fear thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was in the, when I was walking in the Cairngorms, where I, I walked for a long time, actually, in, in the, the footsteps of Nan Shepherd. Mm. But I remember one distinct, I didn't see, I didn't see the whole time I was there. And this is Scotland, you know, it's, Scotland has a fantastically safe rate. Of a lot of the accounts I read from women, which didn't make it into the book, you know, the place they felt safest was Scotland. Mm. There was nobody there. So I thought, <laughs> okay, so this is this could be great. So, um, so when I, uh, first of all, I walked there with my son. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I walked there with a guide in a group. And then thirdly, I walked on my own. But I remember this distinct walk. I was doing an Anne Shepherd, you know, following her, one of her trails. And I met a woman, the first time I'd seen a woman on her own. And she was with her, her, large, her large dog. And I sort of literally just fell on her. And I said, oh, God, it's great to see another woman on her own. And she looked, she looked at me and said, oh, I'm not on my own. And I said, oh, she said, I've got my dog. She said, I never go without my dog. I'd be too scared without my dog. And I thought, I'm like, okay, fine, right. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps Scotland isn't quite what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, she, she, was, she, she said I, I couldn't walk without my dog. Mm. So, um, well, I have to say, when I go off on my long days, like sort of days at a time, I take the dog with me. And I was just thinking, I was just saying to my husband quite recently, I said, I think I'm going to go without the dog. And actually, for two reasons. One is... Crikey, she's she barks, but she she just would roll over for anyone. She's of no protection to me whatsoever. Um, so, but you know, so it's kind of for the company. But I was saying to my husband, actually, I want to go once without her because of the thing that you talk about quite a lot, which is that whole motherhood thing of like the freedom. Because even though I leave the kids, I leave my husband, I leave work and the phone and da 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 it's still someone or something else to think about and look after. And there's that mm. kind of last little vestige of, no, I just, just only want to have myself to look after to see what that feels like. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's funny you should say that because actually since my dog died and I've been walking my own, I keep thinking, oh, I'd love to, I'd love to go. I'd love to have a dog with me. <laughs> oh, I really enjoy your company. And of course I do the whole kind of crazy mad woman thing of yakking a waiter as we're walking along, you know. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> oh, oh, look at that. What is that? What is that lovely pixie? <laughs> but no, cause I, 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 yeah, I, so I'm, I want, I do sometimes wonder if it's a safety thing, but I think mostly I just need to like, cut off the final because I loved some of the things you wrote about motherhood and coming out of motherhood which is one of the things that I one of the reasons I started this podcast it was all about talking to women about the amazing things they've done but also you know understanding in myself where who I am really now that my kids are mm-hmm. I mean they're not even teenagers yet but they're they're nearly there and you start to become little less needed all the time and just to try and find out like where did I go? Who did I become? And I love this. I wrote down a quote from your book. I hope you don't mind if I quote it, but um, you're talking about motherhood as the intense emotional and physical confinement of motherhood, the continuous sense that I had lost myself utterly, the visceral love, the guilt, the bewildering turmoil of it all. Of it all. And it just, along with so many other bits in the book, I, that just uh, like straight, like adrenaline to the heart. I thought, yes, that 
is how I woke up a few years ago going, ah, how did I get here? And right, I need to do something about this. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Because I, I felt with, um, I felt, you know, you can see, you see it coming, don't you? Mm. I, 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 this real strong sense of it, it coming and I'd had four and one had gone and then another one. And I suddenly thought, I thought, uh, you know, this is, this is coming towards me and, you know, what am I going to be? And I, mm. and I, and I wanted to prepare, I wanted to prepare for a, for a life that's I thought would be completely different and it, it was funny actually how preparing for me was was very physical mm. you know I wanted to prepare my body yeah <laughs> and I wanted to I wanted to literally sort of rebuild myself uh, from the inside out mm-hmm. and um walking walking uh, and push, pushing yourself challenging yourself and and doing things that you wouldn't have done you know either when you were younger or while you had a family yeah were really important to me although I actually found that most of the women that I was writing about and most of the women who walked didn't have any mm. children at all but they were all they were all at that point in life where they felt that they had to prepare they had to you know mm-hmm. they had to sort of redesign themselves if you like recompose themselves uh, and I think it's I think it's the same isn't it I mean motherhood obviously is a very specific mm. uh, it's quite long isn't it it's a, it's a big chunk of life <laughs> That you welcome, you welcome with open arms when you have no choice, really. And then when it goes, it's quite, it's quite sudden. Yeah. Because you don't really think, of, you don't really prepare for it in advance, do you? No, you don't really of course you don't. But I thought, you know, I thought, <laughs> maybe it's because I had four of them, so I could have plenty of time to yeah. <laughs> realize that it was, it was coming, coming towards me. Yeah, no, it's so true because I, I felt, I feel that as well. That there's sort of you know, the lengthening of the apron strings, the rediscovering of me. And and you said, you know, it's long. And I was talking to uh, Jo Mosley the other day and she was talking about as well when she was coming, her boys were growing up and she was re- trying to rediscover herself and a little bit more joy in her life. And she and, and, I, and uh, several others, they've all said things like, you know, there's that sort of feeling that mothers have that you kind of almost have to just you feel like you have to put your life on hold a little bit until they're big enough or they're gone or they're so on. And I, a little bit like you, I thought, no, I can't wait until then because 20 years will have gone by and I'll be 20 years older, 20 years less fit or whatever it might be, less capable. And so, no, I, 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 I agree with, I love that. And as you say, not all the women had children and famously Frida who became uh, D.H. Lawrence's wife yes they did get married in the end yeah. didn't they? yes yeah. she yeah. left hers in order to yeah. have her uh, epiphany yeah that's right <laughs> yes I, I saw the irony of that as well <laughs> but, you know to get freedom she actually had to leave them <laughs> yes and I loved how you mixed that in with I, I just I have loved all the way through the book uh, as far as I've got like, like how it is interwoven with your own uh, story and your rather unusual upbringing in the wilds of Wales being as I think is fashionably called these days unschooled um, yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and as I you know as I read it I was you know all the references to Rousseau because I don't know if you know this but uh, well you probably don't because <laughs> it's not like it's a famous document but I did my undergraduate dissertation on autobiography uh, using Rousseau as one of my subjects 
And oh, so uh, Anne de Beauvoir, uh, she wasn't in the dissertation, but she was part of the greater reading. And so I just loved that whole uh, yes, part. I thought, of yes, it. I see you've been fishing out your old copies. I did. I know. And I was like, oh my God. And, uh, you know, I was thinking to myself, my old copies as well. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to have some sort of intellectual discussion with you, but I was quite possibly the shoddiest student ever known to man. Uh, so I have a very, very average degree uh, from a, a very good university. But I loved that whole, because I do remember being being very shocked by the whole Russo forcing his wife to give up their babies. I'm glad you know that because not many people know that. No. And I had, I don't think even I knew when, 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 until I read your book, the extent of it, that there were five and that he just abandoned, like they were forced, she was forced to abandon them after weaning them or something. Hideous. Poor Therese. And then she, and he like banged on and all his books about how to parent, how to be this great (laughs) person and just kind of wiped all that from the, you know, oh, hideous. I know. It's sort of it's shocking, isn't it? Absolutely shocking. And so tell um, us a little bit more about your childhood based on the principles of Rousseau. I just, I find that really fascinating. Well, I was very lucky because my father didn't insist that <laughs> I'd be left in the steps of Norfolk, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the local church, you know, so I got off lightly, I think. <laughs> but he, he was very, very influenced by Rousseau and very influenced by Rousseau's uh, sort of theories of education mm. and how to, how to raise a child in the wild and if you if you remember <laughs> way back uh, to your student days Rousseau was very keen that uh, that children sort of grow up in nature mm. and that they learn by discovering rather than being force fed mm-hmm. uh, you know t- taught their letters and numbers and everything in that very old fashioned way so he had which was really radical mm. then. And now it's, you know, every, so every, um, yeah, most nursery, most nursery schools, all the Montessori yeah. schemes, it's all built Forest on. school. So yes, yes, exactly. So it's, now it all seems quite normal, but then it was, you know, they were all supposed to be learning Latin and Greek when mm-hmm. they were three. <laughs> and now they're all playing with sand and, and planting <laughs> things, which is what he was advocating. Mm. So, um, so in the 60s, it was still quite radical in the 60s, actually. So my father and my mother decided that I would be raised a la Rousseau, a la Emile, and hence they took off to uh, Wales and um, set up a, a sort of little small holding there. We had pig and chickens and vegetables, and, and my dad was a, a poet. So we lived there for about six years, and the local school was was not really very Rousseau-in. Rousseau, Rousseau, how was that? Rousseau-esque, yes. <laughs> it, wasn't, it, wasn't very, it wasn't very Rousseau-esque at all. So they took us out of school and they taught us at home, mm. which was a very <laughs> rather sort of shameful education by today's standards because we really didn't learn anything. We just went for walks. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I learned a lot about wildflowers. I'm, I'm amazing on wildflowers, which is a completely wasted skill <laughs> that no one's ever shown any interest in. But you know, I, I can tell almost every wildflower in, in Wales. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, you know, that's a good thing. <laughs> Well, yes, but no one's remotely interested in it. You can't earn a living from that. So, so I, I learned a lot about wildflowers, and I did quite a lot of writing. And in fairness, I now do earn a living from writing, mm-hmm. so it, it perhaps wasn't quite so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that really was that really was our our sort of our childhood education. Mm. And it's completely different from you know my poor children have been through a London system here where mm. they're you know, just tested, yeah. tested, tested, oh, tested. Yeah. And I, I think maybe the Swiss is a Swiss system. Oh equally? yes, testing, testing, testing every yeah. single day. Like every week they have exams on this, that, and the next thing every week. And it's very yeah. rota, like very learn this, 
write it down, regurgitate it. Good. Next subject. You know, there's it's quite right. like that. Memorize, yeah. repeat. Yeah. <laughs> Memorize, repeat. Yes. Yeah. So unfortunately, um, I seem to have put my well, my children ended up going through that because you know the real drawback, and I talk a bit about this in the book. The real drawback of having that sort of a, a sort of a, a rewilding childhood, mm. if you like, is I I had I didn't learn anything uh physical really there was no there was no PE there was no mm. sport no there were no games I couldn't throw a ball my coordination skills are appalling <laughs> and I think that we now know don't we that you know you need to be you need to be doing all of that as a child mm. because that's how you develop the the parts of your brain that enable you to um you know score a goal you know throw a ball into a hoop or, mm. or that that's sort of hand-eye coordination so I didn't have any of that at all and I also hadn't, you know, had, you don't have sports days. There's, there's a lot of good things about school. Mm. Specifically, I think the the physical education that you get and the the opportunities to whatever it is, you know, learn to sail or play mm-hmm. netball or whatever. So, so I didn't have any of that. And I came out of that. I started going to school when I was just before I was twelve, and I couldn't do anything remotely sporty mm. I mean nothing I couldn't I couldn't really sort of jump I could just sort of you know gallop and, and, <laughs> you, know, sort of, you know gallop like Miranda Hart you know but not <laughs> a high jump or a long jump and I'm, I couldn't throw a javelin and I couldn't put a ball in a hoop mm. so then back in those days you know you were either you either played or if you were really terrible you just didn't go and no one picked you for tea yeah. you just stood and watched and I was in I was in that uh, camp where I just had to stand in the freezing cold and watch all the other girls, you know, efforts yes. <laughs> charging around the netball court or, or, or wielding a hockey stick. And I, I wasn't allowed to play because I was so bad. And the problem with that is it just starts to have a, a sort of a, a domino effect. You start, mm. you start to believe I can't, I can't do that. I can't, you know, I can't swim. I can't ski. I'm, I'm not going to be able to do any of these things. My body is really uh, absolutely useless. Mm. And then, you know, you sort of start to feel you get to those teenage years and you start to feel a little bit betrayed by your body or perhaps mm. the homeschool education you had. Yeah. <laughs> and I really, really didn't want that for my children. So mm. I spent a lot of time making sure that they could swim. You know, I taught them to ride a bicycle as soon as I'm, I'm sure you probably did the same. Yeah. <laughs> I did because I didn't learn to swim till I was 12 because both my parents hated the water and so uh, I was my my son my first child was in the water in his first lesson when he was 14 weeks old because I was like I am producing swimmers (laughs) mine too that's exactly the same mine all had swimming lessons when they were you know just literally born (laughs) but also my first was born in London too and I think that's like it's like the mothership of all things baby and mother than toddler you know like sign them up for sign language at two months old you know what I mean <laughs> so you sort of get yeah, sucked in like you get sucked in by the <laughs> we've got to do all the things <laughs> but actually some of those things I think are quite are quite good mm. now you know those sort of physical things I can't remember what they're called tumble tops oh, yes. and things you know where they roll around on mats and I really haven't Done. I but perhaps I'd sort of done it in a in a way, mm. but not. And do you, but do you think the sort of because you said you did lots of walks, you know, in in valleys and stuff, and that obviously led to a lifelong love of the mountains, and you know, and, and as I say, and, and as you say, sorry, when you felt the need to start going again, walking is where you went. So there was obviously a level of physicality, a level of outdoorsishness, if that, 
that's not even a word, but you know what I mean. Yeah, and that's right. And that is because my parents never had a car and, mm. and could drive. So we actually had to walk. We had to walk if we for anything, to see a friend, to go to the shop, anything we wanted. And where we lived was quite remote. So we had to walk quite a long way. Mm. So for anything we wanted, we had to walk, you know, two or three miles there, two or three miles back. So walking was something that I felt really comfortable mm. with. And uh, I'm really, you know, walking was so, so seeing it's a it's a really obvious place to start also, isn't it? I think when you get to that stage in life, you think, okay, I can't actually, <laughs> I can't play netball, I can't play hockey, I can't play tennis, <laughs> I can't swim, I can't ride a bike. <laughs> and that was in my sort of, you know, my early teenage years when it sort of, I realised that everyone else could do these. Of course, when I lived in Wales and we were being homeschooled, it was just me and my sister. Mm. So I didn't, I didn't realise that these you know, other girls were doing these things so brilliantly and gymnastics, I didn't realise that our whole world was out there. But then when I did we left Wales and I did come into contact with other girls and they were all doing car, you know, cartwheels. And- oh, yeah. Well, if it's any consolation, I went to school in a sort of inverted commas, normal fashion. And I was terrible at all those things. I hated them. And I was always con- constantly last picked, constantly the person going, how do they do that? Like, how do they throw a ball? How do they swish a swirl a hockey stick see I don't I still don't even know what you do with a hockey stick <laughs> so <laughs> there's any consolation at all and I grew up in the middle of nowhere and the thing I knew how to do was build den climb build dens climb trees and ride a horse so you know it's a uh, it can happen regardless I think of your upbringing I think just some yeah. people, I just did not get it I didn't get it I didn't understand I didn't like it I didn't like being out of breath or any of those things so I I do empathize hugely in terms of that getting to your teenage years and thinking oh I'm so uncool because I don't know how to do any of these things (laughs) oh that's well that's very comforting to know so I'll I'll stop blaming my parents (laughs) oh damn sorry (laughs) we like to blame our parents for something at least along the way (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so I like uh, I liked in the book because we, we you know started to talk about the, going to walking as your sort of salvation I guess for a better want of a better word it, you know you you talk about it when you had little kids you talk about it when you know and you were st- stuck doing the laundry and the all the things about looking at pictures on the walls looking at reading the books as you've just said and also um, when you had a broken ankle and you had to sort of one of the chapters of your book was sort of vicariously, uh, you know, through books and maps and so on. So it's obviously something that it has drawn, as I've sort of said before, drawn you, you know, greatly, you know, the walking part of life. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's something about being out. I mean, there's, there's a lot of lot of science about this now, but you know, you you go out and you feel the sunshine and you, you know, the sunshine actually produces a boost of, you know, your brain actually produces serotonin mm. in response to sunlight. So you, you feel better from that. You feel, you know, when you're walking and moving, you know, your oxygen is circulating to your brain. So you start to feel uh, a little bit less, less sort of brain foggy. Mm. You start to think more clearly, you know, if you're walking in forests, you've got the phyton sides, which actually now we know that they are responsible for all sorts of you know, physiological changes deep inside mm. ourselves. So there's something that, uh, again, none of the women I wrote about had any idea of this, but it's, and again, it's only in the last two decades, really, isn't it, that we've started to learn so much about, you know, what, what happens, what happens when it rains and mm. how that actually cleans the air. So that's why, you know, if we walk down a London street after it's been raining, you know, actually the, the air smell. feels really 
the air feels clean, whereas most of the time it's full of diesel. <laughs> so there are lots and lots of, um, there's lots and lots of science now that helps us understand. And, and it makes it even more compelling, I think, that we know that our body actually responds positively to being in trees or by the sea or just and, and in open space. Yeah. Um, so I think, and I think, I actually think most of us have that. Most of us can recognize that. And in fact, during the pandemic, of course, you know, everyone's, everyone suddenly has realized mm. with all those all the distractions gone that actually they feel so much better. Yeah. When they are out in, in, in somewhere, you know, green and blue, if you like. Um, and uh, particularly for people that live in cities, mm. you know, we've, we've, really really craved that and the London parks in the last year have been I mean packed to heaving my my local park had to had to completely shut down for a bit <laughs> because there's so many people in there which of course was a disaster yes no that is that's no horror one had, no one had anywhere to go but that that need for green space people suddenly began to feel it in their bones uh, and the need to walk because yeah. if you're sitting on zoom sitting on zoom oh. all day you know, the thing about Zoom, it's not like a meeting. You can't move around. You don't get up and get a cup of tea. Literally, you're just sitting yeah. there, motionless. And then they're back to back to back all day long for a lot of people and just yeah. Yeah, constantly. Yes. Yeah. But, and, and they haven't got the, I mean, my husband used to walk, he used to walk to work. He had a round trip of seven miles, three and a half miles there and three and a half miles back. And suddenly that went to walking down, you know, 12 stairs. Yeah. From the bedroom into the sitting room. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly his whole, his whole day, he walked 24 stairs in a day. Yeah. Uh, after doing seven miles and I think that's been very uh, you know I think that's been very normal so so yeah so in in some ways uh, I feel that um, you know my book is quite timely because suddenly everyone wants to walk and they want to know about people who walked and women want to know about walking and women for the first time many many women many of my friends have been walking on their own mm. for the first time in their entire lives yeah. and they're starting to like it it takes a bit of getting used to if you've never walked on the yeah. Uh, and some people like it more than others. But I think there's been a whole sea change in the last year uh, in terms of, of in terms of women walking. Oh, uh, and amazing. Now we want to know about other women who walked and we want to know why no one has shared their stories. So there's um so there's quite a bit of there's quite a bit of excavation to be done. So it's great to hear about, you know, Nellie Bly, for example. Yes. Really, why why hasn't Nellie Bly been talked about more often? I mean She's been, you know, she's been, we've known about her, but yeah. not very much. She's very peripheral, really, given given what she achieved. Yeah, and extraordinary. And I loved chatting to Rosemary. And I've also had Jackie Hill Murphy on the podcast as well and talking about all the extraordinary women that she, uh, whose journey she's recreated. And I just, I find this movement of, because it really is a movement. And I just downloaded another book the other day. Can't remember the author. Uh, it's called Wanderers, and uh, similar. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, just I haven't uh, got to it yet, uh, but just I love it because it's so important. Um, because I, you know, alongside studying French and Rousseau at university, I also studied medieval history and women's mm -hmm. history. And one of the things I was doing when I was looking for, although I didn't know I was looking for your book, but I was, <laughs> it was. <laughs> women in way back in medieval times you know how did they yeah. do it and I loved the section in your book there's a bit that where you talk about where you had to as soon as you told people you were on a pilgrimage you became oh well it's a pilgrimage so it's normal it's normal you're on your own because it's to do is tied in with religion and I think 
if and when I get to delve a bit deeper into the medieval times, I think the women going on pilgrimages on the the Caminos and the you know the Via Francigenas yeah. will become. I hope there will be some. Sorry, oh I'm, no, there are quite a lot. Mm. There are quite a lot, and I did have a section. I I cut so much out of my book because it was just go. You know, the, my <laughs> said you've got too many women, and it's, it's all over the place. I, I paired it right back, but I did look at um, female pilgrims. And there are a lot of them. There are a lot of them. And loads in Japan. Fascinating. The, the Japanese pilgrims who go right back to the 10th century and to the time when women were actually not allowed out of their houses at all. Wow. You could only go out if you went on a pilgrimage. Ah. So, of course, women were very keen on going on <laughs> yes. pilgrimages. It was the only way they got out. And there's some, but they're not, they don't have any names. They're always called um, mother of such and such oh, or daughter of such and such so trying to track them down was very hard you had the wealthy ones who went on pilgrimages and often they went barefoot because that was part of the whole pilgrimage mm. if you were really pious you you didn't wear anything on your feet and then at the very bottom end of the Japanese social scale you had these uh traveling sort of ac- actresses really mm. they were actresses and puppet masters and they were all female as well and they would sing and they would walk from town to town and village to city uh singing and performing shows and they were partly prostitutes partly prostitutes i think um you know the two were very closely linked mm. so they would perform and then they would be prostitutes and that was their life and you had those so you had those two ends but but walking all over japan and what do, what do you think are the, th- the sort of main things that you learned from not just these women, but all the women that you've written about? Because, of course, this is not your first book uh, and you wrote a lot more on Frida Lawrence. But what are the things that you've taken from these women? I think the biggest thing I've taken from them is uh, to, to to understand your own fear, to understand that women, we will probably, sadly, always walk with an additional element of, uh, fear and uncertainty mm. we should I don't want to say welcome it or embrace it because that's a little bit too <laughs> too positive but that we should I think accommodate it mm. and accept that that is going to be there and perhaps that we should try and um, uh, make it make it work for us in a way mm. uh, it's in some ways it gives us uh, it gives us stronger, sharper, clearer memories. I realised. Mm-hmm. I realised that the times when I feel a little bit frightened, and, and quite often the other thing I realised was I quite often I feel frightened when there's absolutely nothing to be frightened yeah. of. Just out of interest, do you know why that is? Because when you have a heightened sense of emotion, this is very dull, but I find it quite fascinating. Um, the amygdala in your brain uh, redu- they produce dopamine, and it's like a hard, it's like a hard memory set. Like that's how you, and that's why you remember. That's why you remember where you were, the, the twin towers went down. That's why you remember where you were when you heard about Princess Diana or any of those things. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you did know that. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so your brain is working to store those memories in order perhaps to help you avoid them. Possibly. Yeah. Again. But it's something about that dopamine that just gives you a bam, hard, uh, like a hard save on a, on a, on a, computer memory it's disk just like that that's a brilliant phrase it's like a hard save isn't it and that's why everyone remembers that's what it is and yeah. I always think I have a really amazing memory but I think it's because I'm someone who's quite naturally quite anxious and so things stir quite high emotion in me quite often and so therefore I remember things more than people f- who are a little bit more laid back for example 
Oh, I love that theory. Yeah, I love that theory. And I think uh, I think you're right. And I think, you know, the way I look at it is that, you know, I'm going to have this sort of photo album in my head mm. that will be with me ever of extraordinary experiences mm. that if I hadn't felt that fear or that anxiety, I, those memories would not have seared themselves mm. into my into my hippocampus yes nice oh look at us looking using great big brain words on this conversation (laughs) (laughs) that's right it's all it's all stored in I like to think of it's being it's stored in sort of in full technical isn't it no it totally is I'm so sorry I interrupted you but yeah no I love that that so you think that using it to sort of give ourselves stronger more clear memories yeah, I do. I think, yeah, I do. I think, I, mean, I think we just have to learn to to look at the, the positives that that fear and anxiety give us mm. rather than thinking, I don't want to be frightened or anxious, so I'm going to stay home today and mm. bake a cake mm-hmm. or, you know, or whatever. So honestly, that gives me more anxiety than going on walking on my own. But, you know, that's another <laughs> thing. <laughs> so, to, so to understand that the fear, the fear is part of the whole experience yes. and to be without that would be a little bit lacking. Mm. The other thing I think was that, uh, I realized that a lot of the things that I'm frightened of are not worthy, are not worthy of my yeah, fear. Yes. You know, so, um, I, I, a lot of the things that we are frightened of, I think it's also trying to understand why we're frightened. And once we understand that that fear is, is an evolutionary, it's a protective mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, it's part of our, it's been bequeathed to us by our ancestors mm. to protect us when we once we understand that and we can just sort of strip away that and we say I don't need protecting so I've got yeah. really good walking boots yeah <laughs> and a mobile phone thank you yeah. thank you old-fashioned brain to strip away that and then try and you know I, I think enjoy the landscape a bit more because we've we've managed to deal with the the fear and the anxiety well it's it's good it's I think it's Glennon Doyle in her book Untamed I think it's her or Brene Brown one of them talks about that and it says Thank you. She says, thank you, fear. I know that you're here to try and protect me, but I don't need your help today. Oh, that's fantastic. That sounds very funny. I just, I'm, I, I acknowledge your presence and I see you there and I know why you're here, but I'm fine. Thank you. Step aside. Yeah. And I love that. I love that. I haven't heard it before, but I love it. I will, I will find out who it was. I think it's Glenn and Doyle, but I will, I will double check. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And, and what a fantastic fantastic lesson and, and put so pithily I love that yeah <laughs> step yeah. aside yeah yes I thank you I appreciate it you know it's the whole thing that we're talking about everybody's talking about these days you know boundaries and you know setting boundaries and being polite and acknowledging and saying because a lot of the young women that I see uh I follow on Instagram the sort of adventurers a lot of them doing amazing incredible extraordinary things on their own and they often get asked this you know, oh, are you not afraid? Are you not scared? And they all say, well, I just take normal precautions. And I, you know, but that, as as we've just said, you know, they're the precautions that women for centuries have having, have sadly just had to take. Yeah. But I cannot let it stop me. And, you know, often we all get other people's fears imposed upon us. You know, oh, well, wouldn't you be too scared or isn't that dangerous? And it, going back to what I just said, you know, so many of them just say, now I just say to people, thank you very much for your concern. I will, you know, I will take, bear it in mind. And then you just carry on, do your own thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we have to, don't we? I think so. And so, um, and yourself personally, what 
do you feel like you got mentally and physically out of expanding your, you know, because you sort of expanded out of your motherhood into doing these things? Yes, yes, yes. No, absolutely. I, I uh, I did come back feeling that there was a really exciting world waiting for me on my own me mm-hmm. <laughs> it's oh, out yeah. there and it's all it's all for me but then of course covid struck and i haven't been anywhere for over a year <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> and all the kids came home and it's been absolutely crazy uh, but it does i think um yeah i mean it's a, i think it's a really good i'd probably i'd probably say to any any woman that's thinking okay you know that uh, it, that's come July my last child is leaving home or whatever it is whatever you know that there's always a point you know they're going Mm. off to university or whatever it is I'd always say well why don't you um you know book 10 days and just go hiking just go on Mm. your own and just think about Mm. you know use that time to think about you know how to think about you you know the previous 20 years what you learned from it what you liked about it what you didn't like about it and then just sort of wrap it up put a rib around it put it away for a bit uh, and think about think about you know the next chapter in your life and all the adventures you can now have because you have got children mm. hanging around the feet. <laughs> yeah um so that was uh, yeah I like that and I've I've sort of another thing I've seen recently this sort of and I I loved it I got it from your book as well is that you know that sense that motherhood has to be all giving and all consuming and all everything but it you know, and sometimes there are times when you just think, I, I, you know, I always, I love my children with every fiber of my being, but sometimes you're like, oh, I just would really like for them not to be around. Yes, and you can never <laughs> say that. No, you can't because people think, you know, there's that, oh, what a terrible mother or gosh, really? And I really admit that that's the sort of thing if someone had said that to me when my kids were tiny, I would have I would have judged that. I would have said, really, really? But deep, deep down, it's probably because I already knew that I was thinking, good God, this is way more all-consuming and exhausting than I thought it would be. Yeah, that's a great word. It is all-consuming. Um, and also, I think it's it's important for your children not to think that, you know, not to be thinking that you continually want to be going away from them. So they, so you have to maintain that, that whole sort of facade don't you desperately loving it <laughs> but I but I also think I've came to the conclusion it was also really really important for them to see that it wasn't just daddy that went off oh, and did gosh, adventures yes. and had you know oh I'm just going to go mountaineering oh I'm just going to do a bike race oh I'm away for work and and that was a massive thing for me especially for well in fact I have a son and a daughter and I was going to say especially for my daughter but I think oh, equally yeah. important for my son really that he doesn't think that he needs to end up with somebody who will just stay at home and be the good little woman sort of thing. But for my daughter to see that mummy can go off and on her own and work and do kind of cool, fun, sweaty, difficult adventures. Yes. Yes. So important. I've got three daughters and it's like all Mm. three of them are um, a really keen outdoor. I mean, they're really much more adventurous than I was at their age. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them's walked all over South America on her own. One of them's off to do the Appalachian oh, Trail on her own. One oh, I'm so pack- jealous! Packing on her own at 18, and I, you know, and I just thought, oh, of course, I, of course, I was nervous. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I was also really proud, really, really proud mm. of them. Uh, so yeah, you're right. We need to, we need to, we need to lead from the front. 
Absolutely, 100%. And that was what kicked me off. Like, that's given me a massive kick in the pants. I mean, my daughter was quite little. Both my kids are quite little when I decided that, that I needed to do more stuff for me and on my own. But I'd say probably only in the last couple of years have I really gone, right, okay, now is the time. You know, they're big and they then end up with this much stronger relationship with the, with my husband, with their dad, yeah. you know, to because I'm not there all the time doing all the things that I always do the same way that I always do them. So I've, I've, that's something I've taken yes, from it. Yes. That's a really good point. And that I, they're probably really proud of you as well. Well, they do. They have said that, which has made it just, yeah, makes it all kind of worthwhile yeah, as well. Yeah. I remember um, my son saying to me, I do miss you when you're away, mommy, but it makes me so proud that oh. you go to do these things. Oh. I was like, Oh, Fantastic. <laughs> Yay. No, that's that's really, really, really uh, just really, really important too, isn't it? It is important. So, so la la la. Now, what did I want to ask you? So you've got two books being published this year. You've got Windswept, which is coming out in June. Yes. And then what's next? What's coming out towards the end of the year? I just saw. I've got a my my third novel is coming out uh in America uh in the autumn. And, and then okay. next year. Uh, February in in the UK. Oh, the new one is called The Language of Food, and it's it's completely different. I do actually have quite a passion for cooking. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so I really love cooking, and I often cook from very old co- cookbooks. So this is the story of a uh, a cook, the first cookery writer, really, the first woman to write oh. cookery books. Uh, so it's about her. It's about her. So when I'm not out, lovely, uh, sort of traipsing across the <laughs> traipsing across the hills, I'm. I'm actually, I'm actually cooking. <laughs> oh, well, th- that sounds like just amazing. What a great combo. <laughs> um, and uh, where can we find you on social media or what, uh, what's the best way to find out more about you and your books and so on? Uh, well, I've got a website, which is just www.annabelleabs.com. And then I'm on mm-hmm. uh, Twitter and Instagram and it's the, it's the same. It's just at Annabelle Abs. And yep. I'm on Facebook, Perfect. which is back to front at Abs Annabelle. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> Perfect. I'll get all those in the show notes. Now, I don't know if you saw uh, about the challenge, Katie. It was it was part of my, you probably haven't got that far in the book, but it was part of my sort of initiation into my new self was to, to walk at night on my own. Oh, lovely. And I made my, I eventually walked through a, a wood that I like to think someone above what I'd walked through. Um, so I so I set you a challenge, which was to if you felt safe enough. Mm-hmm. And I have to. I live have in to the southwest. Of, I live in the southwest of Switzerland. I could walk naked through the woods at night, and nothing would happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, so it's not very challenging if you already regularly go out. But one of the things I've been doing in the last couple of years is is going off on I call them night hikes, mm. uh, and I I've got some giant binoculars. I often go, I usually go and it's full moon. And uh, I, I quite often take someone with me, I'll be honest, but mm-hmm. occasionally I go on my own. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but those will be a bit shorter. Yeah. I might just go for half an hour. I'll just go for half an hour when there's a full moon. Uh, and I just go. And uh, if you do it, if you walk at night on your own, you will know all this. But if you don't. No, I don't. Like, it's like being in a different world. It's so, it's so different. In fact, I talk about it later. I think it's in George O'Keefe chapter because there I do a lot of night walking out on the plains because she walked at night all the time on her own oh, right amazing and that was that was the, she was the woman who you know made me think right 
And Nan Shepherd often used to walk around the Cairngorms on her own at night. So, you know, and Gwen John walked at night. I and mean, they were all walking at night. This, this is the other thing that completely shocked me. I thought, God, my God, they're not just trekking all day. They're also walking at night when there's no, you know, there's no street lighting. There's, again, no mobile phones or GPS or yeah. And they were going for, they're all going for night walks on their own. Oh, that sounds um, amazing. So, yeah, so go, I started with full moons. I started when, you know, on the nights when there's, and what do you go at sort of just whenever at night, leave at 11 or oh, as soon as it's dark? Yeah, just whenever it's dark. Yeah, obviously in the winter, I could do it at like five <laughs> o'clock. Or yeah. Um, but yes, eight o'clock, nine o'clock at the moment. I probably have to go at about 10. I might and sometimes just go 10 to 11. And you see different wildlife, you see bats, you see moths. I mean, it's just everything is different. The sounds are different. Sounds travel so much further. Yeah. So you can hear things from miles and miles away. Uh, and um, but only do it if you if you feel that you want to. No, I absolutely. That sounds like a really gorgeous challenge. And I say gorgeous, kind of weird. It feels like a weird word, but the perfect word to use. I love it because during lockdown, I did supermoon walks at four in the morning with the kids and things like that because it just well because we were in lockdown and we were finding things to do. So no, I love the I love the thought of that. Um, I. Yeah, and I'm quite and I'm quite naturally a night owl, so that actually suits me. I don't. I'm not a night owl because I have to get up and function in the morning. But in my natural inclination, if I were left to my own devices, I would stay up all night and sleep late in the morning. Oh, really? Oh, okay. So, yes, you're a real yes. a real owl then. <laughs> yes, it, it doesn't suit actual real life, but that's one of the things I'm looking forward to when the children finally depart. Is that I can sort of revert a little bit more to. Your my natural, natural your rhythm. natural rhythm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wake up I wake up about 10 o'clock so yeah. um oh thank you so so much uh I really honestly could keep chatting to you for a very long time I am loving the book likewise you seem to have had my exact same childhood and everything <laughs> well not quite exact the same but I de- we there's so many similarities in this book that so many that and things that you've brought up in conversations since we've been talking that I've had to fight really hard not to interrupt you going me too me too <laughs> so I have I've, I I'm going to continue reading the book because I'm just thoroughly loving it and it's out on the 5th of June is that right 7th of June 10th of June. 10th of June. Well, I was close. 10th of, 10th of June in the UK and it's called Windswept and it is, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Thank you so, so much for spending all this time with me. Um, it's just been amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Katie. Nice talking. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back next week with another incredible episode of Chatting to a Friend. In the meantime, please give us a follow on Instagram, Chatting to a Friend, for all the latest news. Bye-bye.